Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanko and Scott Parkin. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin, in Berkeley, California. Bob is off on assignment today. But we're going to be doing we're doing a little bit of a follow up story for an episode we had come out a couple weeks ago. Today I'm joined once again by Will Wilchko, who is the director of the California Trade Justice Coalition, and we're going to be talking about the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit, which happened this week. Thanks for having me, Scott. Oh yeah, and so this week in San Francisco, we've seen we as predicted APEC hosted a heads of state and CEO summit. Uh, it was met with a lot of protests. The war on the civilian population in Gaza actually really fueled the protest as Joe Biden was in town. But we also saw a lot of protest around the around Xi Jinping, who's the leader in China, visiting here a lot of anti-China groups, anti-Chinese government groups. There's also a good contingent of pro-China groups. But maybe you can just start off with telling us how things have gone this week so far, as far as protests go and other events. Yeah, things have gone really well. There were a lot of, there have been a lot of fantastic actions that have been happening. Yesterday was really remarkable. We shut down multiple streets and basically made APEC negotiators and other diplomats, other world leaders have to take different routes, turn around, delay it a little bit. And that, that was really nice to see how we sent the message. And maybe, I think maybe we talked about this in the, the last time we talked a couple of weeks ago, but maybe there's a, it was a pretty sizable coalition, I believe of over 200 groups at last count that I'd heard called the NOTA APEC coalition. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the, that coalition? It's a, it was a very diverse coalition, wide spectrum of different political, from different political homes. Uh, maybe talk about that a little bit. Yeah, there was a, as you said, a remarkable coalition of organizations that came together. There's the NOTA APEC coalition, which I think had about 150 organizations in it. And then there was also Big Climate Action, which was more climate focused. And so altogether, there were over 200 organizations that cared and wanted to do, make their voices heard around uh, APEC. And the NOTA APEC coalition itself is, is very diverse. There are a lot of different groups, especially groups who care about what's been happening in the Philippines with regards to labor rights, with regards to how the government treats people. It's been really a remarkable kind of cross-sector uh, coalition that's formed, and hopefully the organizing continues into the future on, on these issues. But a lot of people came together around this, and it's something that is absolutely inspiring to see, but also something that I think shows how much people really want to be heard by their governments. Yeah, and I've referred to this more than once as a movement of movement sort of moment, which is hearkening back to the days of the World Trade Organization protests in 1999, where we saw Teamsters and Turtles. And just to dig into that a little bit, because labor is can often, even though they're on the left, can be a more conservative institution, really leaned into some of what was happening this week. And why did who, who from labor did we see leaning in and how did they lean in? We saw a lot of great labor unions like SEIU was out there, it was Local 1021, and then the San Francisco Labor Council as well really played a key part in all of this. The president of the San Francisco Labor Council, Mike Casey, 
I saw him yesterday chained up, blocking the streets, doing all he could to really lock it down. And so that really speaks to how broad this movement is and how many different organizations are coming together. But labor really played an instrumental part in this. And they also had a, a follow-up kind of action on saying no to APEC later that day with the head of the San Francisco Labor Council and Alameda Labor Council and all the Bay Area Labor Councils speaking out against APEC and speaking out against how high CEOs pay is versus working people and also talking about the digital trade angle as well, which is something that is really going to be a key feature at APEC. Like these big tech companies were trying to put their own rules into trade policies and we beat that back. And and what is, maybe dive into that a little bit more. What is labor's interest in resisting some of these digital trade and, and digital labor related issues? I think there's a lot of interest uh, for sure, but uh, what's been happening at the international level and, and at the level of trade negotiations is that um, lobbyists from these large multinational big tech companies are trying to insert kind of their own rules into trade policies that would lock in monopoly protections for them. It would lock in the ability to shift and store your data wherever they want with any kind of, without any real regulations, which means where the data goes, the jobs go. And so a lot of working people would have to, would lose their jobs overnight almost. And I think that's a real concern for sure, because all of these jobs could easily through what big tech wants be over, be outsourced essentially, or uh, offshored, which would lead to massive devastation on the level of NAFTA or worse. And when jobs get offshore, it's not like they go to a place where workers are making comparable about the money. It's going to a place where workers are making pennies on the dollar, essentially starvation wages. And so it creates this real race to the bottom overall. And so that's really why labor is so concerned about what's in these trade deals, because it affects working people all over the country, but also all over the world. And the most pro-union president in the history of the United States was here, is still here at the APEC summit. And what for labor, and I know that he actually has done some pro-labor things, but why he, yeah, he still supports the IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which we're going to talk a little bit more about that in detail. And so how does you, how would you say that labor and, and workers are reacting to that. We saw Mike Casey locked down in, in an intersection in San Francisco. So I guess that's a, a pretty stark message, but I'm just curious if you have any insight into labor's view on Biden's policies on these trade agreements. I think right now, it, the fact that they walked back the trade pillar, which is the pillar of IPEF that had the most potential giveaways and it didn't have labor enforcement or environmental enforcement. Mm -hmm. The fact that's been walked back and it, it isn't it hasn't been announced. It's just, it's still like they rolled back those talks. And so they're not even really announcing IPEF today. It looks like they're just going to announce an er like some of one pillar and then, you know, some progress on other pillars, but the trade pillar really hasn't happened. And so I think on what the, what it shows is that the Biden administration actually did listen in the end to all of the massive protests that have been happening and all of the actions in Los Angeles, in Detroit, and in Seattle around the APEC negotiations, IPEF negotiations. There was a ton of pressure from labor on that. And the Biden administration, to its credit, like actually did, at least for now, seem to, to take that to heart. And one of the things that we're hearing kind of early press reports is that U.S. Trade Representative decided to not go through with the trade pillar, even though 
uh, she was getting a lot of pressure to because it didn't have any like strong enforcement mechanisms for labor or climate standards. And so that's because of our work. The only reason that they care about that is because we made sure that they cared about that. And we sent stark messages, like the fact that Mike Casey, for example, was willing to get arrested over this. Like that sends a message to the Biden administration that it's good to be pro-labor and it's good to be pro-environment as well. But yeah, I think you, know, you can't go through with bad trade policies if you're going to say you're those things. Yeah. And we've heard Democratic politicians over the last couple of decades also talk about being the most the, the champion of, uh, of the climate issue, like uh, Obama used to say a lot. But as we've talked about before, IPEF is a sort of another attempt at the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which got shot down at the end of the Obama years, beginning of the Trump years. But what impact would IPEF, for example, have on have on the on, on climate and environmental and fossil fuel issues? So without anything on a climate peace clause, which would end trade attacks between climate nations, it really wouldn't have much of a positive impact when it came to stopping or at least reducing the damage that climate change has. And, and I think that it's one thing when they talk about caring about the climate, but it's another thing when they actually pass policies that have strong and enforceable climate standards and work to end climate pollution globalized climate justice, but most importantly, end trade attacks on climate action. And you see these politicians making these big empty promises, but not actually following through on them. And that's a big thing that this trade deal at this point, is, it's been slowed down, it's been delayed. And hopefully in the coming months, we can make sure that if this trade deal does happen, that it actually has these things in it. And if not, then it shouldn't happen. The trade deal is pretty much worthless without strong labor and environmental standards. And as of now, it doesn't have that. It's just watery language. And, you know, just for our audience, I didn't read a list of the APEC nations, but some of the biggest emitters and some of the biggest extractors are members of APEC, like the United States, for example. China is a, a big emitter, although they also have, I think they have the largest clean energy economy as well. But then we also see extraction nations like Canada and Australia, which are members of APEC, or we see Japan, which it's Japan's banking sector is actually one of the largest funders of fossil fuels in the world, along with the United States. And I would wager that I would wager that these countries really are really big on I, I'm looking at the APEC program. It's lots of panels on sustainability and green economies and things like that. But empty promises, I, I think, is a really good way to describe what we really see from most of the world's leaders on this issue. Absolutely. It's a lot of empty promises. And how are you supposed to create sustainability when you lock out ordinary folks and people who are most to lose from climate change? And you create these policies with lobbyists, with CEOs, and with world leaders from some of the worst places when it comes to pollution, and yet you lock out ordinary folks. Like, that's just a recipe for a disaster. It's a recipe for policies that continue the trend of extraction and continue the trend of driving down working people and, and environmental standards. And so it's just... It's a recipe for disaster. And that's why so many folks came together around APEC too, mm -hmm. to protest it, because this is not a, this is a neoliberal form. It's a form to push neoliberal policies, but not policies that actually have solutions for working people or the planet. And I think more and more people woke up to that. And it's just a testament to the power of our organizing that we did beat them back on IPEF a little bit. And 
they aren't able to announce an IPEF deal this week. Instead, they're just announcing these little, we made progress on talking about making a trade deal, which is not the same as announcing a trade deal. And so that- It's spin. It's spin is is what it is. It's spin. They're going to do a little photo off at 3 p.m. today, and they'll shake hands, and maybe they'll sign one pillar, the the, uh, supply chain pillar, which doesn't mention climate change when- it should, because if you're going to tra- have a just transition, you want to talk about that kind of stuff in your supply chain pillar. And on, what could have happened if we hadn't organized around this was a trade deal could have been announced this week that right. would have locked in bad standards for the environment, no enforcement on environmental issues, and then no enforcement on labor rights either. We could have had this terrible deal announced, but because of the organizing that's happened in the last week, in the last several months around this, that's not going to happen. And so that shows that we as a people can come together and overcome literally billions of dollars in lobbyist money and pay and paid off politicians and we can win. So that says a lot about our movement. Yeah. I mean, being connected to people's struggles in other parts of the world and I think that's an important thing is I, as I mostly work in like climate and climate justice circles, and sometimes it feels a bit siloed. It sometimes it feels a bit detached from what's going on in other parts of the world and definitely in other struggles around democracy or human rights and us able to unify under a, a single umbrella around like a, a trade summit like this and a, a neoliberal sort of party for rich people and politicians, dictators and billionaires, as I, I like to say, has been like a, a sort of important sort of moment. And so I've been glad to see it. It's very reminiscent of the, you know, late nineties and early two thousands. Uh, what do you think the prospects are for IPEF after this week? They'd hope to make this week a big shining moment of, of passing this trade deal. And do you, are they, the Biden administration, I believe has said they're putting it on hold for now. There's also congressional Democrats, some of which are running in red districts and red, red states who are flagging how it's a problem. Like I, a lot of the media yesterday was around Sherrod Brown's Senate race, for example. What do you think the prospects are for IPEF going forward? Is it going to be dead or is it just on hold? I think right now we can't count it as dead. I think there's not expected to be an early harvest on trade, which is the most consequential pillar. But despite uh, Senator Brown's press release, countries haven't actually abandoned the trade pillar completely. So as of now, they're still saying that they're moving forward with negotiations. My guess is that any final deal, if there even is one, will be delayed until after lame duck 2024. But we don't know that for sure. And so we'll have to see in the coming weeks and days if they announce any kind of continued progress on that. And President Biden is doing that photo op, making remarks with other IPEF heads of state tonight at 3.30. IPEF heads. IPEF heads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. IPEF heads. But it doesn't seem like they're going to say much about it. But yeah, so what they did was they just announced, like the Commerce Department announced substantial conclusion of Pillars 3, which is clean energy, and 4, which is the anti-corruption pillar. They've released just summaries, but no actual text. And based on Pillar 2, which was the supply chains pillar, it could Mm -hmm. take months before we actually see the text, although they could make it happen a lot sooner. So really right now, it, it seems like this thing is kind of treading water, but we have to be vigilant for sure. And we also have to make sure that we um, don't let anything roll back the progress that we've made in terms of 
delaying this or getting some of the worst things taken out of it because the U.S. trade representative might not be there forever. I think a failure like this on her part could lead to her resigning or something like that. And so if that happens, you don't want someone worse who's going to have like even worse things or push for worse things on climate or on worker rights. So we have to keep organizing together to make sure that we are putting pressure on the Biden administration on this. Do you think, do you think, I have one more labor question. I have a couple other questions for you. Do you think that the sort of building strength and building momentum that we're seeing in the U.S. labor mo movement at the time has really contributed to this, like the UAW strike and the even the the Writers Guild and the SAG and Starbucks workers and, and, and et cetera? Absolutely. I think that labor really has been making sure that their voice is heard on on this and, and a host of other issues too. I think it's sending a message to the Biden administration, but also to other elected officials that they can't keep having these little parties with lobbyists and voting for bad trade policies or bad policies when it comes to working people. And instead, they actually have to pay attention. And so that in itself is a big accomplishment. It speaks to how much labor has done in the last year. Organizing from the Starbucks workers has been really inspirational. And I think in a lot of ways, that kind of organizing that's happened and that kind of movement building demonstrates that the future of the labor movement is going to be a lot younger, a lot more agile, and a lot more versatile as well. And emerging from some sectors that we don't tr normally associate with the labor movements, they're not manufacturers of things or dock workers or anything, they're, they're service workers, which is increasingly the shift in the U.S. economy. Yeah, and I think that's why big tech has been trying really hard to get some of these things put into trade deals because they could offshore those service sector jobs because those are the jobs that are increasingly trying to unionize. And so that's why they really want to do everything they can to offshore jobs to places where folks make a few cents an hour. So they can sustain their billionaire class status. Yeah, essentially keep reaping in profits at the expense of working people. I, I do want to just note and throw out a shout that the Starbucks Workers United were actually a, a pretty big member of the No to APEC coalition and contributed a lot to the to this fight. One other question I have is the other thing you'll see in the mainstream media about APEC is about how it was this meeting between Xi Jinping, the leader of China, and Biden. And some have said that this is Biden's response to Chinese economic expansion, the Belt and Road, initi Road Initiative, and and things along that lines. But it also seems like Biden, the Biden administration, has also been cranking up the the tension in the South China Sea, and then maybe had a gaffe yesterday during the meeting with with Xi. And I'm just wondering if you had any thoughts on that as well. Yeah, I think President Biden called Xi a dictator yesterday, and then doubled down on it <laughs> about it, which not the best way to do a diplomatic, to end your diplomatic meeting. But I know the Chinese government has responded about it too. But I will say IPEF is designed, as, it's this Cold War thing. It's just like the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's designed to contain China, essentially, designed to assert U.S. dominance in the Asia-Pacific region. Um, and I've always felt, especially with the TVP and IPEF, it's like, why are we doing these like Cold War style policies. Who is constructing these deals? And I know the National Security Council, and it's in the media, has a lot to do with like pushing for IPEF to happen. And so that's, you know, you got these 
no offense, but these fossils writing, coming up with policies for how to do this. And these folks are the same folks who have come up with decades and decades of bad policies and have been wrong over and over again. And yeah, it's just, it's embarrassing when that kind of thing keeps happening. And yeah, it's just an anti-China thing, which is... Yeah, um, the money we pour into militarizing this region supposedly to have a be a, a bulwark against Chinese communism or Chinese state authoritarianism is it's like countries like the Philippines put that money into repressing their own people, which is you know, part of the argument with Duarte and with Marcos Jr. is that they have waged they, they have waged war on pe- dissidents and people's movements in their countries with this US buildup of militarism too. It's it's very dis, it's very disconcerting and the good thing about this No to APEC coalition, it's allowed us to make those connections. Yeah, I think that's really important too, because we are rewarding countries and we're rewarding regimes and dictators with these trade policies that benefit them. Um, and, build, and benefit their ruling class. Yeah, and benefit their ruling class. And yet they it creates this massive oppression. And, and people in the United States, we wonder why other countries don't like us and <laughs> put in these like dictators because it, we have this idea that, oh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, even though they're like oppressing people and you know, pushing anti-democratic policies onto their people. And it's what is the end game here? This isn't something that I think most people in the United States even want. Most people at the end of the day just want to have a good job and have a better environment for their families. There's a particular view on Israel which I was going to ask you another question about, is that, you know, part one argument that the U.S. backs Israel so strongly is because of the Israeli lobby and APEC, et cetera. But in the, in the early 70s, I believe it was Nixon who said, we support Israel because they're the cop on the beat. So we put military, we give them the military budget. This can apply to the Philippines as well, as we need a cop on the beat in these places where we need to have some level of control. And that it's pretty much the staple of American foreign policy, in, in my opinion. I would say maybe it's probably the opinion of the Green and Red podcast, but only half of us are here right now. But uh, yeah, and just want to put that out there. But then also, how would you say we're seeing a thunder on the left as well around the, the, the Israel's war on the Palestinians and Hamas and the Palestinian population in Gaza? How did you see that overlap this week during the APEC summit, during the APEC protests? I think a lot of it falls to the same idea that young people especially don't feel like their governments represent them. We don't feel like the United States is taking policies that most of us want on this. And and you talk about Israel being the cop on the beat. What if your cop's beating the crap out of people all the time? Do you still want that cop to be not held accountable for its actions? Like, no. And it's one of those things. And I understand there's a lot of complex history as to how Israel was founded. And I think that it's tough. Last question for you before we have to go is what was a a highlight for you over this past week and building up to this summit and to these protests against the Asia Pacific economic framework, or excuse me, cooperation? I think the highlight was all the groups coming together and working together and, and collaborating in a way that I think is not as common as it used to be. And it just shows how much power we as a movement can have if we work together. And I think that one of the things that folks 
can see is that the organizing that's been done is like from a place of love. It's not hate that's bringing us together, but it's like love, love for each other and love for the idea that people should be able to live their lives free of oppression, that planet should be protected. And like love creates the strongest movements. And that for me is what I saw like throughout the organizing process around APEC. Yeah, it was a, it was, it's been a beautiful thing. I'll say that. Folks, you've been listening to Will Wilchko and I talking about the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit that happened in San Francisco this week and all the politics and movement work and everything else that happened there. If you like what you're listening to, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're watching this on YouTube, hit subscribe. And if you listen to us on the audio platforms, definitely give us a rate and review. It helps us with the algorithms. And then also, if you want to make a donation, go to greenredpodcast.org and hit that support button or become a patron at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast. And we've there's been a lot of misbehaving in the world, and we want to shout out to all those folks and encourage everyone else to keep on misbehaving or join it or whatever it is you need to do. We'll talk to you again soon. We the movement, more than music. Winning all these battles, man, we no longer losing. We the people, organizing. Door to door knocking, waking up the uprising. See, we the movement. More than music, winning all these battles, man, we no longer losing. See, I'm a rebel, man, it's so contagious. They don't even really want me in their job placements. It's outrageous, they are so racist. The system needs a facelift, we need some real changes. Land and education, it's so basic. No need for liquor, homie, it's success that I'm chasing. I no longer fight the struggle, I embrace it. Remix the movement, add a bit of flavor, add a bit of hood to it. That'll do some good to it. Add a little rage and add a little shook to it. Add a little Huey P. Mix it up with you and me. Black and brown unity. Always under scrutiny. We starting up a mutiny. No to impunity. Yes to my community. Yes to my community. The harder they come, boy, the harder they fall. So we throw them overboard while we on a world tour.